You're listening to Hosea, the Jealous Love of a Holy God, a Sunday school series taught by Pastor Dan Christians at Maple City Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario. For more information about Maple City, please visit us online at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. Last week, we looked at the reasons that the book of Hosea was necessary. We took a very long look at all the reasons the book of Hosea was necessary. And in hindsight, it was probably too long of a look at the reasons that the book of Hosea was necessary. Um, I think we probably could have got the point of cross quicker, but what I want to do this, mo- this morning is just really quickly summarize what we learned in a nutshell so we can move on from there. We learned, first of all, that God, in His infinite wisdom and grace, called out a people to Himself. These people were to be like Him, His representatives here on earth. So we know that God called out Abraham, and He gave Abraham these promises of, of a nation that would be like the sand of the seashore, and that he promised all of these things to Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant, that God was calling a people out of the sinful world to be his representatives here on earth. The second thing we learned was that Israel, as the people of God, were given very specific instructions as to how they were to worship God. So it was not just that God called out a people and said, okay, now worship me however you want to. And I think that's how a lot of people think that God must be like. That all that matters is the intention of our heart. But what God did is he gave very specific instructions to Israel and say, said, this is how and where and when you're to worship me. This is what the worship of a holy God looks like. So we saw that those instructions were clearly given. However, number three, when the kingdom split, we saw that the first king of the newly separated northern tribes of Israel named Jeroboam ceased following God's instructions in the proper mode and place of worship. So when the kingdom split and Jeroboam became the king of the ten northern tribes, he stopped following the law of God. He stopped following the instructions that God clearly gave and he, he created his own religious system that he called Judaism. And it's amazing how often this still happens where people will create their own system of worship and disregard what God has said about the worship of Him and then call it Christianity. Call it church. It can't be like that. It's not up to us to determine how God should be worshipped. It's up to us to obey what God has revealed to us about how He should be worshipped. They disregarded God's commands. They disregarded God's messengers, the prophets. And they disregarded anyone who attempted to point them back to God. So, we find that now, here, 100 years later, Jeroboam II is king, and Hosea is sent by God's grace to call Israel to repentance and to warn of future judgment should they refuse. So, 10 kings later, sorry, 13 kings later, Um, Jeroboam II comes on the scene. And Israel, through those 14 kings, from Jeroboam I to Jeroboam II, have continued in this false worship the whole time. And this whole time have been called back by the prophets, back to God, and back to the proper worship. And so now, Jeroboam II is king, and God has sent Hosea as this final messenger who would go and call them back. And he did it through this incredible analogy of Hosea's own family. And so the lessons we learned last week, we should be, number one, insanely excited that God has called you by His grace to be His people. 
Okay? This should have been Israel's attitude. I mean, it's amazing that God would call someone like me, that God would allow me to be one of his people, part of his family. Number two, as the people of God, we should worship God in spirit and in truth. Right? And it's amazing that, that when, when this whole conversation with the Samaritan woman is coming up, this is where it goes, that God should be worshiped in spirit and in truth. Because the problem is, um, Israel was not worshiping the northern tribes or the Samaritans at this time, was not worshiping in truth. They had spirit, they had passion, they had desire. And it seems like the northern tribe of Judah, who was still technically following some of the law that God gave, so they had some truth there, they had lost the spirit, right? And so those things must be combined. We should be worshiping God in spirit and in truth. Number three, we learned we should not disregard the word of God or the messengers that bring that word. It is important for us to be open and looking for the correction of God in our lives. And the only way we'll ever do that is if we can recognize the depravity of our own hearts. If we recognize our own tendencies to stray from God's word, to create our own religion, right? The song we're going to sing this morning, one of the songs is, is Come Thou Fount, and it's prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. And that is, I think we've all experienced that at times, right? And so we should recognize that because what we need to do is then allow the word of God and the message of God to correct us, to call us back to the proper mode and method of worship. Number four, we learned that when confronted with sin, we ought to repent, else our God, who is a jealous God, will employ whatever means necessary to call us back to himself. And we see this in scripture. God is not afraid to use drastic measures to call his people back to himself, right? He allows them to go into terrible bondage under other kings in order for them to realize their need to repent. He allows people in the church of Corinth to be killed so that the other people would realize their need to repent and come back to him. I mean, this is, God is not afraid to do that and he will, he promises to do that. Last week, we looked at the first two of Hosea's children. We saw that his first child, Jezreel, his name meant a lot of things, but ultimately, it was that judgment is imminent. Okay? Judgment is imminent. So judgment is coming. There will, there will be judgment. And so every time that any person said the name of Jezreel, any time that they woke up and said, hey, Jezreel, come for breakfast or, or whatever, they were re- reminded of the fact that God would be judging Israel soon. The second child's name was Loruhama, which means no mercy. No mercy, no love, no compassion. That's what God was promising now, that there would be no longer any mercy. Now you think about that for a second. What is mercy? What is mercy? Okay, so not getting what you deserve. And so what he's saying is, Israel there will be no longer any mercy. You are going to get what you deserve. And so don't think that God is being this unjust, unholy God by saying like, I'm not going to show any mercy on you. What God is saying is, no, you're finally going to get what you deserve. I've showed mercy for so long. I've called you to repent for so long. And finally, I will judge. There will be no more mercy. This week, we'll look at Hosea's third child, Lo-Ami, and we will see that God will judge the disobedience of Israel while remaining faithful to the promises that he made to Abraham and to the children of Israel. And so if you want to open your Bibles to Hosea chapter 1, start reading in verse 8. We will learn of Hosea's third child, a son. Hosea chapter 1, verse 8. 
Now when she had weaned Loruhama, she conceived and bare a son. The first question I want to ask you is, why would it say that she weaned Loruhama? I mean, why is that important information for us, or what does that tell us? Anybody? Age. Age. Okay, good. Tells us that a period of time had gone by. Um, back then, weaning a child would happen at age three or four. So we know three or four years ha- has now passed, and we find that she bare a son. What is missing? She bare a son. Remember, you go back to his first child? We don't know that it was Hosea's. It didn't say that she bare him a son, just that she bare a son. It was very possible this is another illegitimate child. And so by now, the biggest question for all of us is, what will his name be? I mean, will Hosea just get smart and name him Matthew or Jacob or something, you know, normal? Well, we probably imagine he won't. But I can imagine that there would be people in Hosea's family, there would be neighbors and friends and, and, and others in the community that would be kind of looking forward to finding out what Hosea was going to do this time. Maybe in, in almost a mocking way, like, oh, I wonder what Hosea is going to pick, you know? And, and remember, these people are at, the, at this point in their lives are living in a time of prosperity. And Hosea is promising judgment, and they're not seeing that. And so they've seen these first two children. Judgment is imminent. They've seen no mercy. And they're saying, you know what? We, we don't see judgment. We still see mercy. I, I don't know what you're talking about. And so what would the third child be? Verse number nine, then said God, call his name Loami, for you are not my people, and I will not be your God. Before we get into verse 10, we should pause to consider the impact of this statement on the children of Israel. Now, Loami, if you're, it, it, honestly, I think Loami has kind of a nice ring to it. It's a, it's, it's, a, a, when we compare it to some of the other names, Gomer and Jezreel, I feel like Loami just sounds kind of pretty. Um, it means Lo, not, and Ami, mine, or my people. So, not my people. They were the called out people of God. This was the identity of the Israelites. This is what it meant to be a Jew. Their lives revolved around this unshakable truth. At no point had Israel become atheistic. So realize that in Israel's mind, they are in some way still worshiping God. They still consider themselves the people of God. They still have um, deceived themselves into believing that their worship is acceptable in God's eyes. And so now these people who are like, Jose, you're crazy. We still worship. We still go to our own temple. We still do our own thing. What are you talking about? Now he's saying, you're not my people. This is a bold statement. This is a strong statement against Israel. In their minds, they were very religious people. They did not shun God. They did not reject God. They were worshiping God. Yes, they had incorporated some of the um, elements of worship from the gods around them. Yes, they, they didn't do everything right, but they were, they were the people of God. How could you say something like that? They had their temples. They had their high places. They made their sacrifice, sacrifices, and they said what their parents taught them to say about God. And yet, they were so far gone that God says, you're not my people. God points his finger at them through this little boy and says, not 
mine. God says judgment is coming. There will be no mercy. You are not my people. I am not your God. I don't know this for a fact, but I imagine one of the most difficult, hardest things you could say to some, to a, a child, one of your children, is that you're no longer my son. I can't imagine something that would be more hurtful. I can't imagine something more hurtful than a, a son saying that to a father. And so we recognize what this child is supposed to symbolize for Israel. You've, you've gone that far. You've done that much wrong that the Holy God of Heaven can no longer claim you as his child, as his people. Verse number 10, and this is good news. And so we, we got we to get to what, what this statement should have had, the impact it should have been felt by the children of Israel before we get to verse 10. Okay, so you, you, you got to get there, that this was hurtful. This was as bad as it can get. This was against everything that they considered themselves to be. This is God the Father saying to, to his child, the people that are looking up to him saying, we worship you, you're not even mine, and I'm not your God. Verse 10, yet... The number of the children of Israel shall be as the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured nor numbered. And it shall come to pass that in the place where it was said unto them, you are not my people, there it shall be said unto them, you are the sons of the living God. (laughs) What a word of God for the people then. He says, my promises will not be broken. Right? I mean, if you, you know your Bible, you know that verse 10, it has the Abrahamic covenant all over it. This is God repeating what he promised to Abraham in the first place from Genesis chapter 12. My word will not fail. Yes, there will be judgment, but not all is lost. Because there is a part of this promise, promise that do, does not depend on your goodness at all. And, and praise the Lord for that that there was a part of the promise that God had given that did not depend on Israel. So yes, judgment would come, but that wasn't the end of the story. There was still hope. This is an incredible prophecy. Somehow, some way, the judgment would be reversed. How God could do that is a mystery. How could he reverse the, the just judgment that he would hand out? Right? How could he all of a sudden say, okay, never mind, sorry guys, you know what, I know I judge you, but I'm just going to stop doing that now. Um, mercy's coming back, and, and you can be my people again. How, how is he going to fix this? Right? I think 722 years in your room as a timeout has been long enough, and I'm just going to pull you out of that timeout. How is 722 years, just so you know, is t- about the time from the judgment, when judgment finally fell, until the time Christ was born. So how is it just going to be magically all better? How could a woman from Samaria nearly 750 years after Israel was called not my people be once again called my people, my daughter? How can Jesus have this conversation with the woman at the well and say, you can be mine? It's a mystery how confusing this must have been for them. Verse number 11. Then shall the children of Judah and the children of Israel be gathered together and appoint themselves one head, and they shall come up out of the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. First of all, what does the phrase, come up out of the land, remind you of? Anybody? Egypt, right? The Exodus. And what is the Exodus a picture of? Right? The redemption of God. That God brought his children from the land of slavery, from bondage, 
into the promised land, the land of freedom flowing with milk and honey. And God did all that himself. And so he's saying, once again, there will be a redemption. Once again, there will be an exodus. He says, he goes on, he says, great will be the day of Jezreel. And exactly what that means is a little bit of mystery, but I think what the idea is that there's, there's a good day coming. There's a party coming. There's a day when the children of God will rule and reign. There's a day when there will be no more judgment. There's a day when there will be no, there will be mercy that you'll be my people once again. Great shall be the day of Jezreel. And here, one of the shocking statements is that he says, the children of Israel and Judah shall be gathered together under one head. What does that mean? Because when Israel and Judah split, what happened is naturally in Israel, everything got messed up because Judah still had the temple. Judah still had Jerusalem. And so now you have Israel who really has no method of proper worship as long as they're separated from Judah. And it's saying that at this time, there will be a time coming when these two nations that have been separated by sin will be once again gathered together. And not only will be they be gathered together, but they'll be gathered together under one head. This is the future that Israel and Judah, who were called not my people, but somehow miraculously, they have together been called my people once again. This exact same, these exact same words are used toward the children of Judah as well, that they would be called my people once again. Um, Isaiah speaks about this event. He says that God would recover the remnant of his people from both Israel and Judah. Jeremiah speaks of the children of Israel and Judah walking together in the promised land. Ezekiel in chapter 34 says that they'll be gathered together under one servant of the lineage of David. Okay, so we're getting, we're kind of narrowing this down. Who is going to be this one head? Uh, I love Ezekiel 37, verses 15 to 20. So I want to read some of these verses. Um, in verses 15 to 20, I'll just tell you what happens. Um, Ezekiel is commanded to take two sticks. In these two sticks, one of them, he's to write the name Judah on it. And the other one, he's to write Israel on it. And remember, at this time, all Israelites and all of the people of Judah would consider them enemies. They're, they're not together. They're not, they're not friends. They have separated now. And so he was to take these two and God would miraculously reunite these two sticks. And so verse 21 says, And say to them, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I will take the children of Israel from among the heathen, whither they be gone, and will gather them on every side and bring them into their own land. And I will make them one nation. Oh, sorry, verse 20. And the sticks whereon thou writest shall be one in thine hand before their eyes. Okay, so that, that's, that's this miracle coming, right? That, that these sticks will miraculously join once again before their eyes. Okay, it's a little magic trick that God is showing what's going to happen in the future. So verse 21 explains um, how that's going to happen. He's going to gather them together on every side. Verse 22, and I will make them one nation upon the land the mountains of Israel, and one king shall be king to them all, and they shall be no more two nations, neither shall they be divided into two kingdoms any more at all. Neither shall they defile themselves. So see this, I mean, there, there's going to be a change in their behavior. Neither shall they defile themselves any more with their idols, nor their detestable things, nor with their transgressions, but I will save them out of their dwelling places wherein they have sinned and will cleanse them. 
so shall they be my people, and I will be their God. And David, my servant, shall be king over them, and they shall have one shepherd, and they shall also walk in my judgments and observe my statutes and do them. And they shall dwell in the land that I have given to my servant Jacob, wherein your fathers have dwelt, and they shall dwell therein, even they and their children and their children's children, forever. Are you getting how much of this has been fulfilled and how much of, like, Christ fulfills all of this? Right? Isn't it amazing that they're going to be my people? I mean, they're God. David, my king, will be the king over them. They'll have one shepherd. They're going to walk in my judgments. Like, this is exactly the language of the New Testament. This is all of this being fulfilled. Right? Um, and that this will happen not only for them, but forever from that point forward. And my servant David shall be their prince forever. Moreover, I will make a covenant of peace with them. It will be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will place them and multiply them and set my sanctuary in the midst of them forevermore. My tabernacle also shall be with them. Yea, I will be their God and they shall be my people. And what language that speaks of the day that we will see Christ and that there will be no more sun because God himself will dwell with us. I mean, that's exactly what's happening here. So these promises, I think, in Ezekiel are just so, so wonderful to think that the God of the universe had this written down so long ago and we see part of this being having already been fulfilled. We're in this great time in history, aren't we? where we get to look back and see how God is already starting to do this and look forward to the day that this will be completed. That's exactly where we're at. For them, it's all a mystery. It's all in the future. It's all like, I don't know, how is this going to happen? How is David going to be on the throne again? I mean, one shepherd, what are you talking about? How fortunate we are. And so here he says they're going to be gathered under one head. And I think just, just that statement has so much to it. That someday... Every, all the children of God will be gathered under one king. Verse number, um, chapter 2, verse 1, belongs with the previous chapter. And so it says, Say to your brethren, Ami, and to your sister, Ruhama. And what that's saying is, it's a reiteration of the complete reversal of the judgment. Say to your brothers, you are loved. You are mine. Say to your sisters, you have received mercy. There is mercy. It's a complete reversal of that judgment. Nevertheless, for the children of Israel, judgment is still coming. In their immediate future, there will be judgment for their sin. We are reminded of this in verse 2 and the following 12 verses. And so I think we'll spend our last few moments today considering the extent that God would judge Israel's unfaithfulness. And, And these are surprising verses. They're verses that speak of God's judgment in a very... Uh, detailed and graphic way. And they, they really are, are shocking. And sometimes we need to be reminded of how much God hates sin. And, and so we see his judgment here. In verse number two, chapter two, plead with your mother, plead. That, even that word of pleading, beg, I mean, call, call her back. It, it's not this um, terrible, awful God that's just belting out commands. It's a God who's saying, plead with her. For she is not my wife, neither am I her husband. Let her therefore put away her whoredoms out of her sight and her adulteries from between her breasts. She is not my wife. She is not acting like my wife. She's done doing none of the things that a wife ought to be, and I cannot be a husband toward her. This isn't how this relationship is supposed to work. 
there's a break here. Something has come between us. What has come between them? Well, her whoredoms, right? Her unfaithfulness. I think the idea of um, take her whoredoms out of her sight um, speaks of the whoredoms out of her mind and her heart and what's going on inside of her. And then um, her adulteries from between her breasts are her, her actions, right? That, that everything about them had been corrupted. That they were sinning both in their minds and their hearts and their actions. Everything about them had, had gone away from God's plan, away from God's will. And so he's pleading with his wife, right? His bride, that she would put that away. Because as that stands, there's no way to have a proper marital relationship between God and his people. You can't have God and his people and all of these other gods who are the lovers, right? It just doesn't work. And that's what he's saying. This, this can't continue to work. So verse 3, lest I strip her naked and set her as the day that she was born and make her as a wilderness and set her like a dry land and slay her with thirst. This is terrifying. Can you imagine God said to you, I'm going to strip you naked and make you as the day you were born? Utterly hopeless, utterly helpless. The baby that's born and you leave that baby, what happens? He cries until it dies, right? That's, that's terrifying to think that this is what God is saying. If you don't put this away from you, then I'm going to make you as a, as a, <laughs> the day you were born. Make you a wilderness, put you in the desert, and kill you with thirst. Um, do you know when, when you die of thirst, what happens is your, your, cells, your cells begin to shrink all over your, your entire body. Every, every cell in your body begins to shrink because the moisture that's usually in those cells that makes those cells bigger um, begins to go out of the cells so that it can go into your bloodstream and try and feed your vital organs, right? And ultimately what happens when you die of thirst is that your organs start to shut down, your kidneys st- shut down, and they stop cleaning your blood like they're supposed to. And so what happens is the toxins that are in your body ultimately kill you. It is what's already inside of you that kills you. Your body becomes the victim of its own toxins. And the idea of I'm going to slay her with thirst, it's just this picture of they're going to die because I'm, I'm, I'm leaving them to themselves, right? And that's without God, they are naked and helpless and hopeless and in the desert and, and are going to die of thirst. I'm just going to remove myself from them. God is warning. He's calling them back. This judgment that is coming is, is God allowing Israel to finally get what they deserve. Verse number four. And I will not have mercy upon her children, for they be children of whoredoms. For their mother has played the harlot. She that conceived them has done shamefully, for she said, I will go after my lovers that give me my bread and my water and my wool and my flax mine oil, and my drink. Don't lose sight of this. The judgment is severe, but it's not entirely lost. It says, for their mother. Um, He's still calling them back. For their mother has played the harlot. Um, She made the choice to pursue lovers that she believed provided for her. Um, What that is, is them believing that God really does not have their best interest at heart. I will pursue the God that will feed me and keep me satisfied. That is exactly what the children of Israel have done, right? They've made their own religion. They've made their own gods. And now they're, they're attributing to these 
this false god that they've created in their minds, that they're now, they're now calling the God of heaven, they're attributing to him all of the things that the true God has actually given. And so they're, they're going to him and saying, and he's saying, I'm going I'm to remove that from you. You're not going to have that anymore. Verse number six, Therefore, behold, I will hedge up thy way with thorns and make a wall that she cannot find her pass, and she shall follow after her lovers. Okay, her lovers being the picture of these false gods. She's going to go after them, but she shall not overtake them. She shall seek them, but shall not find them. Then shall she say, I will go and return to my first husband, for it was better with me than now. She will follow her lovers, but she will never lay hold on them. I think this is the experience of every person who ever attempts to find satisfaction in anything apart from God, right? I mean, you, you long for that satisfaction, you, you taste it for a moment, and you follow after that thing continually, and it, it's, it never satisfies. It never does it again. It really, it's like the crack addict who has that high for the first time and then pursues that and destroys everything in their life for that satisfaction once again. It just never comes. Solomon learned the lesson the hard way. And pastor, maybe in a few years, we'll get to that part of the story. <laughs> in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 10, this is what Solomon says. He says, He that loves silver shall not be satisfied with silver, nor he that loves abundance with increase. This also is vanity. Right? You follow after these things, hoping they satisfy. They never will. They never can. And here he's saying, she's going to go after her lovers. She's not going to find them. They're going to, they're going to turn up empty. Um, and so she will return. And she says, I will go and return to my first husband, for it was better with me then than now. When, when that verse is read, when that part, is there anything that it reminds you of? Any, any story in the New Testament that you're like, oh yeah, it's kind of similar language. I will go and return to my first husband, for it was better with me then than now. Prodigal son. Isn't that it? I mean, as much as we read this and we go, man, God is harsh. I mean, this is a harsh judgment on these people. We also realize that that this is necessary for God to remove his hand of, of mercy and blessing so that they would see their true state and what they were without him so that they would finally realize their need to return. You know, I find amazing when you're going through this and talking about, you've already met the idea of redemption in Egypt, and that theme is all through the Old Testament, mm-hmm. and all through the New Testament, mm-hmm. and, and even this experience that as I'm sitting here listening to her, mm-hmm. right, how she thinks I'm going to go after them, none of it is new. Right. It's all the same. Absolutely. From, from cover to cover. Yep. And yet we're so foolish not to get it. Yep. Absolutely. I mean, that, what, it reminds, what it reminds me of, first of all, is for then it was better than me for now, uh, um, it reminds me of Israel who is constantly, um, oh, yeah, I'm going to do whatever I want to do, and I'm going to sin, I'm going to go into... And then, and then they realize when they go into bondage, oh, it's better for me back then when, I, when we were following God, so that's why they repent, right? It's the, the history of humanity throughout Israel's story and on. And the history of God's work among humanity is, this, is redemption, right? And sometimes what's necessary is for judgment to, to fall so that we see our need for, for redemption, how much better it would be if we just get this, right? If we could just read this and see the story and be like, I'm going to repent now before, it's, before I have to get to this place where I'm naked in the desert, right? Dying of thirst. Verse number eight. For she did not know that I gave for corn 
and wine and oil and multiplied her silver and gold, which they prepared for Baal. It was me all along. There's nothing good that you have. Any of the good satisfaction you feel in this life is a gift of God, right? Everything good she'd ever received came from his hand. Can you imagine this? Can you imagine the way God is seeing this? That he's giving his wife good gifts. And she's taking those gifts and saying, do you see what the false gods gave me? You see, God gives her a diamond, a beautiful diamond. Can you imagine giving your wife a beautiful diamond necklace? And having her go and tell all of her friends in your presence that she was given to that by her unfaith- the lover she's being unfaithful with. The gift that you had worked to buy and you'd given and you'd given out of love and now she's <laughs> be killing some people, right? I mean, that's, that's what has to happen if you're a husband. And God is a jealous God. And he's saying, it was me all along. Can I show you... <clears throat> oh, so just how we see this. Can I show you just how we see this a little bit in the New Testament? Um, Romans chapter 1, verse 21 says, because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were they thankful, right? They weren't looking to God and saying, God gave me these things and God is good and we should worship him. But they became futile in their thoughts and their foolish hearts were darkened. Verse 25 says, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. I mean, this depravity of man is the story of us taking things that God had gave and and making them God's. taking good things. And so I I know that when we look at the Old Testament, sometimes we look at the idol worship and we think, how could you carve something out of a stone and and then set it up and make that an idol? But everything that you worship that is not God is something that that God has given that you've created and you've put it up in front of God, right? And you've given that, that is the thing that's going to satisfy my desires. That is the thing that's going to bring me peace and joy and contentment. And those things never do and they never can, but they do bring an ounce this, this slight little bit of it, and so we keep pursuing it. And the reason they give a little bit of it is because they were given to us by God. And so every time that we pursue those things, what we're doing is saying, I don't need you, God, I want, I want the stuff you give. And that is not, I mean, that's not how we're supposed to be doing it. Um, we should be able to enjoy those things without worshiping them. Verse number nine, therefore, I will return and take away my corn. So I, I gave it to him. She's saying it to somebody else's. I'm, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to return. I'm going to take away her corn in the time thereof, my wine in the season thereof, and I will recover my wool and my flax given to her nakedness. I will take those gifts from her that I gave. I will take away the covering that I had given to her to cover her nakedness, right? That, that's the idea here is I will take away the flax to cover her nakedness. And again, this reminds me of the Garden of Eden where God had covered Adam and Eve, and now he was taking away that covering. Um, verse number 10, Now I will discover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, and none shall deliver her out of my hand. I will allow the world to see who she really is. I'm going to make her sin public, so that people see it. There will be no hope of rescue from any outside source, right? There, nobody's going to come to deliver her. And whether that's nobody would come to rescue her because they don't want to, or nobody would come to rescue her because they can't. They can't. I mean, I think both of these, those things are true. Again, the prodigal son, right? He gets to the end of everything and, and nobody's there for him. And his only hope is to go back to his father. Um, verse number, number 11, I will cause all of her mirth to cease, her feast days, her new moons, and her Sabbaths, and her solemn... In other words, 
I will not allow her to pretend anymore. All of those things have to do with her old, her false religion. He says, I'm going to take away that false religion, right? I'm not going to let her pretend like somehow she's still worshiping me. And that's exactly what happened, by the way. What happened is um, Assyria came in and destroyed the temples that they were worshiping in and, and pulled them all into different directions. And they had no ability to, to practice these false worshiping. They, they couldn't pretend like they were worshiping God as they were at this time. Um, all of these things connected with their false religion would be destroyed. He, he would put an end to the facade. You will not stand on your religion. It will be swiftly taken from you. Verse number 12. I will destroy her vines and her figs, whereof she has said, these are my rewards that my lovers have given me. And I will make them a forest and the beasts of the field shall eat them. The idea of there of the rewards that her lovers had given her were payment or wages. So all of the wages that she received participating in her sin would be taken from her. I will destroy those things she worked so hard to attain. Verse number 13. I will visit upon her the days of Balaam, wherein she burned incense to them, and she decked herself with earrings and her jewels, and she went after her lovers and forgot me saith the Lord, right? I will visit her. I will punish her. I will repay her what she deserves. Verse number 13 is a summary of her sin, right? When she burned incense to them and she decked herself with the earrings and the jewels, she went after her lovers and she forgot me. I mean, that's a summary statement of all of that Israel had done. And he says, I will repay her. Um, I I will punish her. I will give her what she deserves for dressing herself up and for whoring herself to other gods. I will punish her for her unfaithfulness. And in verse 14, it begins with the word therefore. And what I expect to happen is now that we've received this huge summary, this this large statement and then this summary statement at the end here of all of her sins and all of the reasons she deserves to be punished, I expect therefore God to say, and and, and what, this is what I'm going to do. I mean, he's going to continue on the same stretch that he's been, right? Therefore, what do you think is coming? Well, you're going to have to read it because that's going to be your homework. <laughs> I think we expect this to be a culmination of the judgment, um, a devastating summation of what God will do to repay his whoring bride for her unfaithfulness. But what a God we serve. And you'll see that when you read it. And so try and wrap your head this week around verse 14. All right? Next week, it's going to be exciting. Next week is good stuff. All right? Next week is not just judgment. Next week we see, we see this incredible mercy of God. All right? So thank you for coming today. God bless.